0: Dear children, this will be a long letter. It should not turn into a book. I am not an author who writes out of idealistic desires to present his vision to the world to improve it, nor am I one who seeks the bestseller with a clever plot loaded with a bit of philosophy, some history, and plenty of sex so that I can become rich and famous. These lines have a different purpose. After all, they're intended for you, and in the end, for myself. While you enjoy your usual cold winter, I'm calmly sitting here in a climate much more to my liking, soaking in the hot sun to brown my back while I pleasurably recall experiences lived long ago in which, from time to time, I may have something to say about. Thus, this should turn into a kind of memoir. This is a story about my grandfather, Otto Hans Melchior, or Hans, as my father likes to call him. Hans was born on April 24th, 1902 in Hamburg, exactly one month and one century before my birth. His father was a teacher who earned a meager salary, and they had an affordable apartment in Eppendorf. But this isn't just a story about Hans. This is a story about history. Hans's life, although I cannot claim he lived an ordinary life, was woven by the tumultuous current events he lived through. He, like any individual, whether extraordinary or not, was inadvertently tied to his times, constrained by them, propelled by them, and shaped by them. In these podcasts, I hope to play a game of Where's Waldo, looking at the big dynamic picture which was international affairs throughout the two world wars, and then zooming in on Hans's red and white striped shirt. Where was his place in the larger picture? I must start off this podcast with a few big warnings to the listener. The first is that I will be butchering the majority of German pronunciations here. While my entire family speaks German, and Melchior spoke German, I can in no way pronounce German or even dare to speak it. The reason why I can even read Melchior's memoirs, which were written entirely in German, is thanks to my nainai, the youngest daughter of Melchior, and my grandmother, who dutifully translated his entire memoir. In actuality, it was a memoir written to her. What I will be reading for the podcast today is the English translation of his stories. So let's jump right in. The first thing he mentioned is a few early childhood memories, one of which is the flight of Hans Grade. He remarked that it's almost impossible that he remembers this name, and weird that it suddenly comes back to memory. But out of curiosity and a desire to fact-check, I decided to look up this pilot. It turns out what he had been witnessing, and what he claims was witnessing history, was the first initial flight of Hans Grade, but in all likelihood probably part of a series of 70 flights which he undertook in his building of his first three-decker aircraft. This was a pretty big deal, and he was a very, very famous German pilot who went on to fly his first model plane in 1909 and even carry Germany's first airmail. He was a celebrity at the time. Melchior's next memories are a little bit more pertinent to our story and indicative of the German nationalism of his times. In his memoirs, he says, Easter 1909, I was seven years old and had started elementary school. I usually wore a sailor suit to school, blue wool and winter white cotton shirt with blue collar in summer and a keel cap with our blue boys emblazoned in gold. This was in fashion because the Kaiser was particularly proud of our blue marines and every good citizen concurred. German folks at the time were highly patriotic. One of the most important holidays, for example, was the 2nd of September, Sedan Day, named after the town of Sedan in France. On this day, in 1870, the Prussian troops soundly defeated the French. We had no classes that day, but were forced to attend school for patriotic celebrations, which our parents attended. I can still see myself proudly reciting a poem in front of an audience of teachers, students, and parents. A Prussian soldier fell at the hands of the french etc etc most likely thoroughly disgusting kitschy rubbish yet the majority of germans were enthralled we were the chosen people the french were limp effeminate and decadent the english petty minded with no ideals and was about time to give them a good beating of the americans there was little to say america was too far away to be of interest it was where delinquent and problematic youth were shipped off to never return these were days of extreme patriotism. As children, we had no understanding, and I cannot remember any of us ever questioning or rebelling against the stupidity. We were brought up to conform and participate, going along with the order of the day. He remarks on very many interesting phenomenon when he writes about the early stages of German nationalism and his own youth. The Blue Boys, he speaks of, were the prize navy of the Kaiser of Germany— The Kaiser he refers to, and the Kaiser who is usually related to the concept of the German Navy, was the last Kaiser of Germany, or German Emperor, who prided himself on strengthening the Germans' position as an international power by building a blue-water navy. However, he did have a weakness, and that weakness was impulsiveness, something which was often credited as a main reason for the start of World War I. Think of him as a Kaiser-German-Donald Trump. He called King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy the dwarf in front of the king's own entourage. He called the prince, later Tsar Ferdinand of Bulgaria, Fernando Nazo on account of his big nose. And in the early 20th century, Wilhelm began to concentrate on another agenda, the creation of a German navy that would rival that of Britain and put it in the ranks of those real world powers that he hoped one day for Germany to be. He even had confided in his uncle, the Prince of Wales, that this was a childhood dream of his, to have a fleet of his own someday. However, many of his advisors frequently exploited him because of this. The New York Times has quoted saying, "...more sinisterly, Wilhelm's patronage of the aggressive nationalistic right left him surrounded by ministers who held a collective conviction that a European war was both inevitable and even desirable." Alfred von Germany's naval chief, who realized in his meeting with the Kaiser that he did not live in the real world, consciously exploited Wilhelm's envy and rage in order to extract astronomical sums, which were required to build a German Navy to rival Britain's, a project that created an arms race and became an intractable block to peace negotiations. Once again, the Donald Trump's comparison seems fairly apt at the time. He was essentially getting exploited by his advisors, many of whom would financially benefit from the instigation of a world war, and they appealed to his massive ego and his desire to start up a German navy, something which had been a passion of his since childhood. While the Kaiser wasn't solely responsible for the First World War, his actions and choices certainly helped to bring it on. However, the Kaiser was only one piece of this nationalist rhetoric, which was fueling the blood in the veins of the German people at the time before the outbreak of World War I. Sedan Day, which Melchior had happily participated in, but later called nationalist drivel, was a celebration of the Battle of Sedan, which was a part of the Franco-Prussian War. However, Sedan Day more specifically celebrated the capture of Napoleon III and his troops, which put the war definitively in Prussia's favor. It was celebrated as a battle of the rebirth of the German Empire, and it had mostly urban appeal. It was not very popular with German Catholics or those from leftist organizations, perhaps a nod that nationalism and right-wing nationalism mostly stemmed from cities and communities of academics, and wasn't as popular within rural communities, something we will address later in this podcast. German socialists, on the other hand, viewed it as a device of the German government, more in line with Melchior's latest beliefs. One German author was quoted saying, Let us, in view of tomorrow's Sedan Day celebrations, once again appeal to our town's population's patriotic spirit. May the people of our town demonstrate, by ritually decorating their homes, that Osberg continues to be an honorable bastion of German nationhood. Now, Melchior celebrations of Sedan Day were fairly common practice for his era, as the holiday was a really big deal. Think of it like America's Fourth of July. Components of celebrating this day ranged from decorating with black and white flags, this combination of flags celebrating both the state and the municipality that people resided within. Pupils would also attend celebrations and listen to speeches given by their teachers. Priests held special church services. Sedan Day was a community event, and everyone came together, including grammar schools, girls who would typically dress in white school dresses, and parents. Now... Another source, which I rely on frequently throughout these podcasts, an article called Why Did German Youth Become Fascists, remarks that after Wilhelm II endorsed increasingly strident national demands on the curriculum of 1890, weekly hours of German in elementary schools increased, and history instruction in most schools focused more and more on German's nation-building period, especially its wars and its heroes. Subsequent national decrees required that all schools celebrate Sedan Day, songs and music instruction increasingly favored militaristic and nationalistic lyrics, and pupils in secondary schools in Berlin were given the day off to attend the Kaiser's Autumn Military Parade. Other schoolboys wrote essays with titles like Foundation and Justification for National Pride. I laughed when I read this because it sounded a lot like what Melchior had described— Him reading off the ridiculous account of a Prussian soldier falling at the hands of the French was pretty commonplace in Germany, and indicative of the patriotic spirit which Germany was trying to invoke in its people, more particularly its younger generations, at the beginning of World War I. After all, this was an era of nationalist consolidation in Europe. This isn't to say that Melchior ended up a fascist in the end, but I guess we'll be talking about that later. Ultimately, Hans remarks that the financial situation of his youth, one of tight finances and penny savings, ended up improving, and his father was promoted to Seminar Lehrer, which brought in a better salary and, following the advice of a colleague, they moved out to a better quarters of the town of Horn in 1910. Since there was no nearby school, he ended up going to Matthias Claudius Gymnasium. It's important to note here that gymnasium is a term for a German academic high school. Matthias Claudius' gymnasium can actually still be found online today. About his high school, Melchior remarked, And so I went by foot, leaving the house in the early dark hours of the morning and walking for about an hour to school, then returning the same way home in the afternoon. I was eight years old and can clearly remember the long route. The first part took me along poorly lit, underdeveloped, and overgrown outskirts of Horn. I had no fear, but remember Wells slogging through the deep snow and the cold, relieved to finally arrive in Wansbeck, where the streets were at least partly cleared of the snow. Matthias Claudius High School was a disgusting, ugly, bright red brick building of a school near the middle of town. Located just below the courtyard, the latrines gave off a putrid smell. Now, I can confirm from my... Quick Google search that his descriptions rang true. It is a very ugly building, but it has since been converted into a more chic, modern form of brick. And, in all honesty, it has only gotten uglier. I got a sense that this story was a little bit of an I-walk-two-ways-uphill-in-ten-feet-of-snow kind of story. As we will see throughout his story, Melchior is no stranger to hyperbole. But it does tell the beginnings of his long conflict with education, which will be very important throughout the rest of this podcast. In his first year, as he remarks, he was a really good student with honors, but soon he learned just how to offend his teachers. Their assessments on his report card apparently sounded a little like this. Hans did not qualify for honors because of his constant chatter, interrupting, and disturbing my classes. However, Hans wasn't particularly pained by these negative reports, since he remarks that he had no ambition whatsoever to do well in school. Part of this lack of ambition and his desire not to go to school ended up getting him involved in several direct war efforts throughout World War I, and ultimately into a right-wing nationalist revolution. He remarked that most of these four years took place during World War I, as well as the first tumultuous years of the revolution. While too young to be soldiers, we teenagers volunteered in the war effort. This cut into our school days, which didn't bother me one bit. To this day, I really don't know whether it was rebellion from school or patriotism which motivated me to volunteer. Now, during this period of complete rejection from everything academic, he participated in a string of three volunteer escapades all three of which provide some valuable insight into the German total war effort during World War I, as well as the way in which teenage boys would get indoctrinated into a patriotic right-wing nationalist pipeline in order to better the German Empire during their ultimate demise during the World Wars. And, as we will see throughout this podcast, Melchior would become no stranger to this pipeline. We join Melchior now on the brink of his first military escapade. He is a high schooler, barely 15, and already in the throes of a war, one which he is heartily welcoming. In this episode, we'll learn more about his experiences on the home front and how they ended up shaping the rest of his extraordinary life. Melchior remarks that in the spring of 1917, I got my first opportunity. They were looking for volunteers to work as field hands, and many of us students who had never done any agricultural work were transported by train far outside of the city to Zeven, a small town in the province of Hanover, surrounded by farmland, meadows, and wetlands, which was settled by farmers who toiled long and hard to harvest their crops. At the outset of the war, all young men were called up for military duty, leaving women and old men to work the soil. At first, the military sent Russian captives to replace them, but as the war progressed, they transferred these prisoners to the mines to bolster the war industry. The remaining foreign workers needed help, and so we young and experienced and slightly undernourished students were brought in to help. It could be that from the very outset, the farmers had their doubts that this arrangement would work. At any rate, I remember very clearly the scene at the Zevin train Station when we arrived. We boys were lined up, and the farmers stepped forward to select the biggest and strongest for themselves. I still see the old farmer who grabbed and squeezed my bicep and proclaimed, He will do. I wasn't asked, and he got his wish. And so, short of my fifteenth year, I rode in a hay cart from Zevin to somewhere near the town of Battingstead, where this man had a small farm out in the countryside, which impressed me as somewhat dilapidated. These folks were living primitively. They had no electricity, used no lights. When it got dark, they simply went to bed. When I asked the farmer why he had a lantern in the barn, he indicated that he needed it in case of a calving at night. I slept on straw in an alcove of the room where they cooked and ate, and where I was not permitted to open a window. Now is the first time when it is of vital importance to have a Where's Waldo moment. Let's contextualize Melchior's experiences. Peasants didn't really understand the war effort. Peasants, in fact, saw themselves as victims of a war which was out of their control, a conflict wrapped up in patriotism and nationalism which they hadn't necessarily been indoctrinated into and that they didn't understand. There was a big divide between the war effort in urban areas and suburbs and the war effort in rural communities where they felt far removed from the ups and downs of international affairs. They didn't particularly understand what was happening to them, only that what was happening was really, really bad for their economic situation. Agricultural had been pushed aside in the face of larger issues, like constricting volunteers for physical fighting and mobilization. However, this didn't mean that agricultural communities didn't feel the effects of the war. About 30% of men in agriculture were called to arms, which doesn't seem like a large number, but it pretty much ground to halt all agricultural production, especially since the most able-bodied and physically capable men were taken off of their farms where they were so desperately needed. The government tried to compensate for the lack of rural workers by increasing employment of prisoners of war and refugees, but given the fact that these people weren't particularly motivated to work for the Germans, who they so despised, these efforts were fairly limited and when they did occur, were relatively unsuccessful. As a result, governments relied on the ability of farmers to adapt to their new situation. Later, the government allowed soldiers to leave their front lines to seasonally work when the agricultural situation got particularly bad. According to the International Encyclopedia on the First World War, the dynamics of rural society on the home front and the experiences of those there were largely shaped by state control of the agrarian economy, which began in 1915 and lasted in varying degrees until late 1923. Farmers' wives were largely powerless in the face of the system of maximum prices, farm inspections, and confiscation. This meant that while everyone who was able-bodied and capable of working on farms was taken by the government, in exchange, farmers and laborers left over were faced with incredibly big demands and large government supervision. Supervision which they were never faced with before. They didn't necessarily like this imposing government intervention, especially after the government had wronged them so by forcing their men into a war which they didn't like. Those who approved the war consisted largely of members of the nationalistic middle class, particularly supporters of the youth movement and patriotic student groups, such as Melchior. The vast majority of the working class, however, disapproved strongly of the war. Farmers were mostly disapproving because they were worried how their farms would run and how the current harvest would be brought in, now that so many of their valuable and skilled men were at war. To make matters worse, the German government had also forced agricultural workers to sell their horses, ...forcing them to part with another valuable form of labor in order to better the war effort. Thus, in order to rectify this dilemma, the German government felt it was necessary to form a Uniform Approval Procedure, which was established in January of 1916. It was essentially a questionnaire to be filled out by every farm of more than 200 acres, requesting information, for instance, about the size of the farm and how many people labored on it. This was handed out by the local government, along with a notification period of leave, which was likely to be necessary... And then this was given to the district office, and it was passed up through the ranks of government. Now, they gave leave to those whose farm workers were most urgently needed to attend to the crops, and they also figured out who needed the most concentrated relief efforts. So Hans worked more specifically as a jungaman in the process. Jungaman were young men, usually secondary school boys, who were employed by state ministries of education and organized into little agricultural groups. They were patriotic voluntary laborers, and they had the option of leaving school and earning wages for their work. Obviously, with Melchior's bad history and education, he was going to take them up on the offer. Not surprisingly, these boys had been indoctrinated strongly into the war pedagogy of the time. They had been brought up with the patriotism that was inflicted in them by practices such as Sedan Day, and now they were dealing with the nationalist rhetoric of Germany's the best, Germany will win this war, and other sentiments of imperialism. So these 75,000 mostly middle-class young men were sent into the countryside for weeks or months at a time where they experienced an environment and anti-war sentiments that were completely new to them. Instead of being hailed as heroes solving the food crisis, these middle school boys were driven away by the farmers who found them arrogant and physically weak and even turned the majority of them away. Problems with provisioning even harmed the junglemen men more, as they went without adequate food and even had to sleep on straw beds, similarly to Melchior's experiences. However, I'd assume that Melchior stayed on either through boredom's sake or out of a deeper patriotism, nationalistic drive, which I'm going to guess is the main contributing factor. Participation in these programs did involve patriotic labor and was a main way that nationalist middle-class youth learned that the working class had been, at least according to their standards, betraying the nation they loved so dearly. This was largely because these boys, who had been lauded at home for volunteering their services for the war effort, were subsequently rejected by the people who worked in agriculture. However, these teenage boys had experienced pride at contributing to the nation in this war and resented those who rejected them. This resentment could have possibly been the reason why there was an underlying tension between Hans and the farmers he worked for. He recalled in his memoir that for my first 15th birthday, my parents mailed me a package to Zemun for pickup. The farmer offered to collect it for me sometime, and since he had other business there. I rejected his offer, insisting that I wanted to pick it up myself on my birthday. He grumbled that I had quite enough and held fast. He refused to let me use the old cart, and so I let him know that I would go on foot. He offered that I would pay for those days of travel, and I magnanimously relinquished my salary of 50 pennies a day. I neglected to do the morning feeding chores, and he withheld my breakfast. And thus, we parted. On the day of his birthday conflict, he almost considered quitting, once he realized that his fellow students had actually returned long ago. His volunteer experience had hardly been the patriotic picnic he expected— However, he ended up staying on longer until a letter arrived that all of his classmates had returned to Hamburg and he was expected to do the same. Predictably, school didn't hold his interest for long, and its desire to miss out on school perfectly coincided with the German government's desire to take on young, healthy boys and take them out of school. Melchior recalls that too many people were slaughtered and lives destroyed, that more than ever, young boys were in demand. For some time, the French front was more or less stationary and attempts were made to sow and harvest crops on large tracts of French farmland occupied by German troops. French civilians forced to work in these fields did not provide enough labor power, and so calls went out appealing to us students to exercise their patriotic duty. For this purpose, they organized the Youth Brigade for the Occupied Territories, for which they recruited high school students. While not everyone chose to volunteer, nor had parental approval, by far most students were motivated to do their duty. Of course, I was among them. This youth brigade was once again a volunteer effort riddled with indoctrination. It's at this point that I like to really lean on the source I mentioned earlier. Why did German youth become Nazis? Because I think they do a great job of explaining the effect of the German militaristic pipeline. They mentioned that the primary motivation for joining military youth companies, such as the one Melchior was involved with at the time, was to play soldier and demonstrate a commitment to the war in the nation. The biggest of these companies, the German Youth League, had up to 750,000 youths in its programs. For these male youth, the companies reinforced an identity with the soldier and isolated them in their militarism and nationalism from the working class, specifically the rural working class. There were plenty of youths willing to enlist in these companies because of the wartime pedagogy that we mentioned before. Their schools had glorified military heroes and curated student interest in the destructive power of weaponry. This meant that little boys from Protestant towns and small cities received an education which romanticized masculine soldier fantasies, encouraging militarism and promoting nationalism. School administrators throughout Germany actually allowed teachers to completely abandon their lesson plans. Everything needed to focus around the war. Math would calculate the amount of ammunition you needed to destroy a fleet. English, you would write stories about brave soldiers. It was almost taboo to express anti-militarism and flat out not allowed in school curriculums. And so there was not a singular direct criticism of the Great War at all, um, for that matter. The same article reports that war books sold well and accounted for most of the new publications for male youth from 1914 to 1918. In magazines, the war became the overwhelmingly dominant topic. In a 1916 survey of the reading preferences of 50 12-year-old boys in public elementary school in Munich, 46% reported that war books were actually their favorite kind of book. Aggressive masculinity was also propelled by cheap 30-page paperbacks called War Penny Dreadfuls. These magazines featured patriotic, hypermasculine protagonists who were shockingly similar to Marvel characters. They had superhero traits and idealistic bodies. Every boy hoped one day to achieve the heroism that the soldiers featured in these 30-cent pages and to become part of this war machine. This desire for violence was even reported to be reflected in the increased violence of their playtimes and street behavior in some studies. Now, I would like to hypothesize that this potentially led to Hans's eventual career with arms dealing, and most certainly had to do with his early elementary school socialization, which we talked about earlier, and eventually might've led to his later volunteering. And this socialization might explain why he ultimately ended up in such a violent career, and why this violence didn't particularly affect him on any emotional level. It's almost as if, glancing back on it retrospectively as he does in his memoir, he tells the stories of his arms deals and the ruthless warlords he interacted with in a comical, novelistic style, as we will see later in this podcast. Perhaps a note to his consumption of wartime media as a kid. Since elementary school, he had been shown glorious figures of people being with arms, dealing with arms, getting shot by arms, and this made his future career almost glorified in a way. But for the purposes of right now, let's get back to his work for the Youth Brigade, because the stories here can really stand on their own. He says that, "'We rode third class on ribbed wooden benches, six of us with all our gear in one compartment. The quarters cramped. We couldn't have much sleep on this three-day journey.'" Throughout the duration of the Second Front War, German trains were overloaded, and thus our cars were shunted aside to make way for priority military trains. We also stopped with the larger military rest stops, where slowly we shoved our way through in long lines, mess kits in hands, waiting for a spoonful of slop. If we were lucky, we got barley with a bit of stew, if not watery vegetable broth. One of these aid stations was in Herbesthal, which I think was somewhere along the border of Germany and Belgium. This is where we got our first real rye bread, with some kind of spread. You may think it funny that after so many years, I should remember in such detail. This addition, however, contributed to an important exchange network, which emerged among us and lasted throughout our time together. We had three different valuable commodities, warm food, bread, and spread for daily trades. These transactions were made without money. At first, it was all rather chaotic, but soon strict rules took hold, like two pieces of bread were worth one spoonful of marmalade. Then conflict arose over the thickness of the slices or the amount on the spoon. Why we were so serious and intensely focused on the details of our trades, you may understand better if you knew that for the entire six months in our service in France, we went to bed hungry. Both quantity and quality of care for us was truly miserable. Soldiers received considerably more and better provisions. So we went to them to beg for any leftovers in their cooking pots. We had our own small kitchen, and our rations looked similar to those that were given to the French civilians. I would hope that for the latter, who, unlike us, labored for more than six months, there were other sources of food which could be found. We, nevertheless, were constantly hungry. Together, we composed the Hunger Symphony, singing and screaming it through the halls in our letters home. We complained bitterly. Surely, I don't need to mention that none of this did any good. We ate anything, even what was not entirely edible, from corn kernels to raw roots pulled up in the fields to apples which we stole. For the most part, our poor nutrition or rotten food didn't do us in. But there were some exceptions. A number of us were admitted to the military medical service to treat dysentery, and one of our companions died from it. We pulled wheat, harvested grain, picked apples, and even collected nettles to be used as substitute farmer's fibers by the German clothing industry. Work here was easy to bear compared to the time we spent on the farm a year ago. It was sheer pleasure. After the workday, we made our way to town where we scrounged around for food or sat around with soldiers who good-naturedly engaged us with conversation. When they saw us arrive, they sang out, "'Look who's coming from Hanover, teenage trifles with wooden rifles.'" and continued on by treating us to harmless ribbing. During the course of the summer, a troop of young soldiers just two years our senior arrived at our staging area on the way to the front line. And to them, we boys actually considered ourselves superior. After all, we had a significant plus. We knew better how to exploit food trades to our own advantage. We spoke some French and were sought after to translate transactions between soldiers and French farm wives. The soldier employed a raw, harsh military manner of speaking. Eskewed were kind words, and the farm wives didn't appreciate polite small talk. Tell her I want to go to bed with her. Then I'll give her a whole loaf of rye bread, and you can have a thick slice. We were so ordered. And we cheerfully rendered that sentence. How convenient that we, at the age of 16, were most passionately interested in a thick slice of rye bread. And so, weeks and months of a hot summer passed from time to time troops from the front lines would pass through and regale us with descriptions of the war in the trenches. This was the fifth year of warfare. The Russian Revolution had taken place the year before. Because there was no longer fighting on the Eastern Front, all the soldiers from there could be redeployed to the West. This advantage proved insignificant, however, because America had already entered the war against us. We boys, of course, had no idea about our own exhaustive resources and the overpowering material advantages of forces fighting against us. The German troops in the trenches now had no more awareness than did we. They dug their trenches, but for some time now, neither side could make any progress against the other. It was a stationary front. While the soldiers were not so optimistic that they could wish for victory, they also did not fear total defeat. We had heard at the time much talk of a truce. All this took place only a few months before the complete collapse. How horribly uninformed the average citizen is kept. And yet it is he who is most subject to political propaganda. What a waste. Admittedly, this description was a little bit darker than the description of boys playing soldiers would admit. One must note that at the time, he worked on the front lines, which had currently run into France's territory. This meant that French civilians had been put to work in German agriculture. For similar reasons to the ones that were mentioned before, there was a stark shortage in farm labor. As the International Encyclopedia of the First World War put it, the government tried to compensate for the lack of rural workers by taking advantage of migration or hired foreign workers from colonies or other states. But in general, these measures were limited, as governments relied on the ability of families to adapt to the new situation, or later conceded regular leave to soldiers for seasonal work. With the occupation of enemy territory, the civilian population of this territory presented the possible solution. German authorities were particularly interested in making the use of this labor force. Since Germany had occupied most of Belgium, parts of northern France where Hans worked, parts of Russia, Poland, and the Baltic in 1915, there were not only many skilled workers, but also there was high unemployment. In the eyes of the German authorities, this seemed like an ideal area to recruit labor. However, recruitment on a more or less voluntary basis never met expectations. As a result, forced recruitment and labor was introduced in 1916. Hans described this conflict in his personal account as such. We had many different kinds of chores. Every morning, we marched into the town's command post where French civilians, both men and women, also had to report. Most of them were elderly, but there were a few teenagers with whom we could demonstrate our prowess in the art of speaking French. This French community had already lived three years under German occupation. So they had by this time, resigned themselves to their situation. Their German firm supervisors held a gentle approach and I cannot recall any hostility, but obviously the French had no desire whatsoever to do the Germans bidding. Melchior was eventually called home as Germany prepared for their ultimate loss in World War I. And he took a long train ride back home and was sent back to school. Almost immediately, he took advantage of the first chance he got to leave school again, when a call went out for volunteer paramedics. He did so mostly because every time the Red Cross expected new injured troops to arrive, the volunteers got to be pulled out of classes for the day. It's important to note that he was not very interested in attending classes, even after two of his volunteer experiences abroad. According to the book, Lessons from the Enemy, How Germany Cares for Her War Disabled, the voluntary nurses and the men orderlies had by long practice perfected themselves in the handling and transportation of patients. Besides the hospital and assistant hospital trains, which the military authority held in readiness and sent out with the first load of surgical supplies to the front, the Red Cross, immediately after the outbreak of the war, set to work their association hospital trains, which had been held in readiness according to military instruction." These trains were dispatched all at once by the National Societies of the Red Cross. The German Central Committee delivered its four society trains promptly on the 15th Mobilization Day, and the Oppression Committee its six trains on the 22nd and 29th Mobilization Days. Quite a number of additional association hospital trains were furnished by the various provincial and national societies of the Red Cross. Such trains are still prepared and equipped with a regular army staff in order to enable the speedy and careful transportation of the wounded from the dressing centers and fields to the hospital-distant roads, and hospital trains and ships, automobiles in large numbers are offered and used. The primary source mentioned that, lately, volunteer service has endeavored to stop the gaps that are here and there and that are still noticeable. Melchior was part of this volunteer service. He describes in a short description his duty of volunteering nurses, which was almost perfectly lining up with the primary source that I just read to you all. He recalls how within a few weeks we perfected stretcher carrying, enabling us to carry stretchers without sweating. We learned to dress wounds along with a few other simple first aid techniques. And after completing the course, in addition to a certificate, we received a red cross visor cap and armband. Now, this makes it sound like a glorified version of the Boy Scouts, but in fact, as his further descriptions note, his work was quite gruesome. He describes how, not only did these railway cars give off a stench so vile that I can still feel it in my nose, but it proved difficult to lift and remove the wounded from these crowded compartments. To get them through and around tight corners, we had to turn them on their sides, lift them high and carry them until reaching the platform where we could lay them gently down again. And don't forget that no stretchers were available to us. These were all occupied by the most seriously wounded, and we 16-year-olds knew all too well what extra care those stretchers demanded. Melker's work for the Red Cross, however, ended abruptly, and this is where the story gets interesting. As we have previously speculated, Hans's initial indoctrination into German nationalism was through a patriotic education, which was responsible for his enchantment with escapades on behalf of the German war effort, whether that be farming, the Youth Brigade, or ultimately the Red Cross. However, much like many of his fellow teens, the outbreak of civil war in Germany had forced Germans to channel their indoctrination and propensity for militarism and violence into a new outlet. In order to understand Hans's participation in these new conflicts, it's essential to know the basic players, those being the right-wing German nationalists, also known as the MVP, and the German Communist Party, or KDP. Melchior was fresh off of a tour from the German countryside, then to the war front, and finally to the Red Cross. He got a unique and youthful perspective that few have historically documented. He had embodied home-front nationalism and was thus far the ideal German citizen. However, these tables would soon turn. This new era of Melchior's life was marked by rebellion, mutiny, and predictably more violence. The right-wing German nationalists were, as the name suggests, strongly nationalistic but additionally militaristic. They supported a large military, despite the restrictions placed upon Germany following the Treaty of Versailles, and as a result were strongly opposed to what they considered as the unfair tenets of the treaty. They were against labor unions, social welfare programming, and progressive taxation, but they supported large estate landowners and industrialists. They were fairly anti-Semitic and favored traditional roles for women. They were pretty sexist. More specifically, the German Nationalist People's Party, or DNVP, had a support base made up mostly of Protestant landowners, industrialists, and civil servants, and farmers who would followed the lead of these wealthy landowners. It's more likely that Hans fell into the first of the two categories, as in his account, he does describe being baptized and even baptizing his children as Protestants. Even though he wasn't a particularly religious individual, he still kind of bought into the Protestant middle class culture. So this party attracted a lot of white-collar workers with their militaristic, anti-Semitic Republican views and the rejection of the Versailles Treaty, which was pretty unpopular with other militarists. Now, in the furthest right branch of the German right wing was those who supported the ultimate cap Putsch, which attempted to overthrow the already fairly nationalistic Weimar Republic in order to protest German demilitarization in accordance with the Treaty of Versailles. These were the most right-wing radicals that you could get in this right-wing party. Now, on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, the German Communist Party, or KPD, which was founded on December 19th during the revolutionary chaos, drew its base from the radical Spartacus group that had been suppressed by the army of the traditional government and was mostly made up of social democrats. And their party contained a mix of radical workers, a small group of radical intellectuals, But it was mostly just fundamentally opposed to the Weimar Republic, on the opposite side of things, of course. It believed that the government wasn't communist enough. It wasn't liberal enough. So they also opposed the Weimar Republic, which was the republic at the time, and Germany's government from 1918 to 1933. The German Nationalist People's Party ended up eventually blending into the German National Socialist Party under the direction of Adolf Hitler, But while Melchior was a volunteer for the German Nationalist Party and a strong supporter, he never got engaged with the National Socialists, probably because his political views had changed since then, or possibly because his removal from German politics toward the beginning of Hitler's regime gave him the space he needed away from the right-wing pipeline and allowed him to break out of the German political scene. The German Nationalists were, in this way, pitted against the German Communists, which ended up working out, in some ways, in their favor. For one, the Weimar Republic could use the intentional fear of Bolsheviks and communism to justify rapid armament on an international scale. According to the article, War and Peace, Paramilitary Violence in Europe After the Great War, and this is a direct quote from that article... In Germany, the anti-Bolshevik fear, as well as supplying a tool of deliberate exaggeration in the diplomatic trial of the strength of the Western powers over the terms of the peace settlement, also provided a dramatic caricature of the threat or reality of social upheaval as the German revolution unfolded. The fear of a Bolshevik revolution should not be underestimated as a mobilizing factor. The organizational strategies of counter-revolutionary paramilitarism, discipline, and obedience toward the leader, were achieved through a form of comradeship, which was generated through the voluntary recruitment of members. Paramilitary leaders claimed that violence could cleanse, purify, or regenerate the people and the national mentality in order for the moral rejuvenation of the nation. However, more specific to the unique situation of Melchior, this violence included German youths. In Why did German youth become fascists? Johnson mentions this exact situation. When youth were denied the opportunity to volunteer in the army because of age and viewed German defeat as a result of interior sabotage, they sought a continuation of the war at home in paramilitary organizations. For example, one 18 year old Berliner who pursued an apprenticeship in sales Remembered being enthusiastic about the war and entering a military youth company in 1915. Another early Nazi remembered playing games in 1918 that resulted in bloody heads and police intervention. A civilian, the entire war, he volunteered during the revolution at age 18 in a militia and fought communists. So many young people were attracted to the competing movements of the communists versus the socialists, and this ended up in a lot of paramilitary violence. However, these paramilitary groups were completely allowed under the Treaty of Versailles, which had been meant to de-escalate German military power, and as a result of the national government not having a strong military force, and all of these individual fighting groups having strong military forces, ended up in a lot of internal conflict in Germany, something which people who were Melchior's age were really, really happy to get engaged in, because they had passed up the opportunity to use their pent-up nationalism in battle. So a set of age-specific explanations for why so many youth were attracted to nationalist and militarist groups and had their political awakening in November 1918 is definitely there. During the war, they had experienced war pedagogy and believed that the working class had shirked their patriotic duty and were denied their wish to fight for Germany's glory on the front. Their entry into nationalistic paramilitary groups and the Nazi party developed out of a frustration with having sacrificed and trained to defend Germany without ever being given the chance to demonstrate their patriotism and manhood on the front. Much like Melchior, they weren't allowed to serve in the actual military, but were still indoctrinated into the system, which led to a lot of built-up frustration. This, perhaps, could have been Melchior's reasoning behind joining the ultimate right-wing cat push. In order to better understand the Putsch, I'll lay out some kind of minimal explanation of the history for you. Walter von Lewis, commanding general in the German army, and Wolfgang Kapp, a German provincial officer, staged a coup d'etat in order to protest certain elements of the Treaty of Versailles, such as the reduction of the German army, in order to, to replace the current Weimar Republic with a rightist regime. This was the most extreme example of rightism that I was talking about before. However, they were opposed by workers and many members of the German population in Berlin who were not willing to accept the putsch. Initially, they attempted to maintain a calm atmosphere in the city of Berlin, which they had taken complete control over. They gave troops orders to maintain peace and control, but this was a kind of violent peace and control because they had set up machine guns throughout the city and hung up posters with the words, whoever proceeds will be shot. They also tried to take control of the press, but failed after a series of blunders which might have ultimately doomed the cap putsch. First, they were unable to locate the press chief and therefore weren't able to get their manifesto, which held all of their political beliefs and the reasons behind the cap putsch published in time. They also struggled to find people willing to accept positions in their own cabinet. And overall, Berliners were fairly unsupportive and paid little to no attention to what was going on politically in their city. They were just kind of going around doing their own thing and minding their own business. The president of Germany, Friedrich Ebert, called for the population to help fight the putsch, and members of the Executive Social Democratic Party responded by urging German loyalists to strike. This general strike ended up being very successful. Thousands inside Berlin spontaneously ceased work and many factories closed. However, there were even more blunders along the way. The cap regime was unsuccessful in persuading the bank to give funds which were urgently needed in order to fund their escapades. Essentially, the new regime faced too strong of opposition, both on the inside and on the outside of their cap push, but especially among the German population, which meant that the cap regime was ultimately going to be defeated. With a bureaucracy that refused to work with them and the protesting populace, their failure became more and more inevitable. Most of the troops ended up losing hope and leaving by that time. And on Tuesday, March 16th, the coup collapsed, CAP resigned, and it all ended up ending less than five days after it began. However, according to Swarthmore Global Nonviolent Action Database, confused fighting continued for some days between armed workers and frightened soldiers in Berlin and elsewhere. Essentially, it was a mess. The CAP Putsch was, as we can see now, a massive failure. However, it was a massive failure which Melchior happily took part in. Following his stunt as a nurse for the German Red Cross, Melchior had joined a provisional army. There were a ton of these armies in Germany at the time, as there were a solution to the Treaty of Versailles' limit against the buildup of a standing army over a hundred thousand men by the Germans. When the provisional Weimar Republic failed to build up a reliable army, it authorized the formation of free corps, which were smaller armies made up of volunteers who were former officers in the since-defeated imperial army. At one point, there were over 100 free corps with over 240,000 men. These men were responsible for fighting Bolshevik, Baltic, and Polish forces, and additionally putting down communist leftist uprisings in Germany. However, these armies often ended up turning over into right-wing extremist movements, as was the case with Hans. Hans writes that it did not take long for Germany to get around this agreement under the guise of an organization to train temporary contact volunteers. Any man, 18 years or older, could enroll in an accelerated basic military training program. These instructors were former active duty soldiers who could use all kinds of military supplies, facilities, and barracks for this purpose. School administrators could not, and would not, stand in the way of such patriotic undertakings. Given my attitudes towards school, and political views at the time, it's totally understandable that I rushed to sign up. I left home, moved into the barracks of Berenfeld, and became a soldier. My comrades were fellow students from my school and elsewhere, and the enthusiasm was high, and the drills were lots of fun. It was actually during a regular battalion exercise that news of the Kat Putsch reached Hans'. He describes in his document how joyous cries rang out, Revolution in Berlin! The Kaiser is back! Our enthusiasm was boundless. News of the capuch had reached us. The Kaiser, of course, had not returned. And the right-wing capuch would most certainly come to a miserable end. But we knew nothing of this. We headed straight back to the barracks and led about all day exchanging wild rumors. Meanwhile, that night, our troop leader came to the conclusion that he should march us from Berenfeld to Hamburg. Just before reaching Homburg's town hall, they armed us with weapons. Was this for real, and against whom were we actually fighting? We knew nothing, and given our youthful stupidity and enthusiasm, we would have taken a lethal bullet without knowing what or for why. In retrospect, I see that it was not just our own ignorance that propelled us forward, but also the irresponsible and reckless command of a radical right-wing leader. Thank God not a shot was fired. Without resistance, we occupied the town hall. I huddled with a small group in a room on the outside floor. From our window, we could see a section of the town hall square. Nothing stood outside. Once in a while, a lonely figure might run across the square and disappear into the dark. Tension subsided and our hunger kicked in. But we didn't dare eat our rations. We were informed that the local police would protect the town hall, and we were to merge back to Berenfeld. And so it went. When we returned to our barracks the next morning, they were close to us. The German military now occupied them. We marched into a neighboring town where, because it was a Sunday, we found shelter in a girls' school, lazing about while our leaders consulted and negotiated, and finding no food about, we finally ate up our rations we had carried. Later that afternoon, our leader informed us that our voluntary corps was being disbanded, and in its place, he was forming a Berenfeld Volunteer Corps. Anyone not wishing to join up could leave. The next morning, this new corps was to march on to Mecklenburg, where we would join another volunteer corps, led by General Lido Verbeck. It slowly dawned on me that things were not quite right. I had no knowledge whatsoever of the state of or reasons for conflict, nor were there any radio communications to enlighten me. Why march on to Mecklenburg, after all? I had no ambitions to be a professional soldier. I questioned my friend, John Camerlotte. Together, we hashed out the pros and cons and decided to leave it all behind us. This correct decision was only shared by a few. Most students stayed on with the Corps. Those of us who left departed that very evening. In the meantime, a general strike, which included all public transportation, had been declared. So John and I walked our way back to Eppendorf. Dressed in full military uniform, complete with helmet and weapon, we walked in the darkness, encountering only a few folks who sought to avoid us. Safe and unmolested, we found our way back home around midnight. A few days later, I was back in school. Hans's classmates, however, had a worse time of it, at least according to his descriptions. He recalls how neutrality declared by the military and the general strike together brought about the collapse of the right-wing Cap Putsch. Those of my classmates who chose to stay on with the Corps eventually did march on to Mecklenburg, but never met up with another group. Days went by and ranks thinned out as parents found transport to bring their sons home. This aggravated the commander, and he swore at all remaining volunteers and warned that any desertions would lead to the death penalty. As crazy as this sounds, this actually happened. His troops marched for another week or so, without any clue that the right-wing corps had collapsed long ago. Their march circumvented all towns and avoided any contact with other civilians, At night, they bedded down with like-minded supporters, then, unfurling their black, white, and red flags, marched on the next morning. It all might be something to laugh at, but when you think about it, that these young boys were willing to die for a cause which, unbeknownst to them, had already been lost, then you can comprehend the horror of it all. In the meantime, high school and university administrators let it be known that if students who had joined the Corps did not return forthwith, they could be expelled. Eventually, all of the Corps disbanded. Their volunteers, provided with makeshift civilian clothes, were separated to board different trains so they could inconspicuously return to Hamburg. General Lido Vorbeck, the general who he would have ended up under if he had joined the 2nd Volunteer Corps, was actually pretty famous. I took the time to research him and found that he was most famous for his leadership in World War I and his usage of classic tactics of guerrilla warfare, which he used in order to fight off a much larger British-Indian force and most famously was nicknamed Never Defeated and Did Not Surrender. This was actually because he maintained his force 14 days after the armistice had been signed, and the fighting had ended in Europe. His participation in the right-wing revolutions was mentioned upon his death in the New York Times as follows. He returned to Germany in January 1919. There, he organized a corps of right-wing volunteers that occupied Hamburg on July 25, 1919, Despite his heroic leadership in World War I, he was reduced to poverty in Berlin. His economic situation only salvaged when the marshal reorganized pensions for retired soldiers. It's a pretty sad story, if I do say so myself, but then again, he was a right-wing leader of a military coup. However, on this note, it does seem as if Hans did in fact have his history mixed up when he wrote about the Corps led by Leto Vorbeck. The Corps was cited on his death notice as occupying Hamburg on July 25th, 1919, and having been formed prior to the right-wing coup Putsch, which Hans mentions. It appears it existed in Hamburg in order to suppress revolutionary unrest, which had occurred in Hamburg under the Bonn Uprising. You can actually look up more information about that. It's probable that Hans's corps was being disbanded and would be joining the pre existent members of the Barnfeld Volunteer Corps under the leadership of Vorbeck, which wasn't in fact newly formed but had existed prior to the military coup. So that's pretty much where our story ends today. I had a few general takeaways from this segment of Hans's life. The first of which is the story which hopefully I was effective in laying out for all of you the way that his patriotic and militaristic education ended up leading to his future volunteer efforts, which ended up leading to his engagement in the military in his future job, just in a different means as an arms producer. Hans was not alone in his convictions and aspirations, but rather guided by the hands of his times. However, this also made the second chapter of Hans's life certainly harder to read, and that is because he knew firsthand how gruesome and awful war was, He had seen the dead bodies in his experiences working for the Red Cross. He had been on the home front and experienced the starvation when he was working as a volunteer on the front lines. He had seen the fact that militarism tears apart communities in his job as a farmhand. And he had participated so actively in the World War that one would assume that he came out of that with the same perspective that a lot of other Germans did, that war was a gruesome ordeal, which was essentially pointless and led to endless death, especially since he was so directly involved in the militarism after the war. However, instead of that, he went on to continue to contribute to the war machine. And I guess, although we'll talk more about this in my next podcast, it makes the fact that he contributed so directly and even profited economically for the rest of his life off of selling guns and selling ammunition to communities which were constantly faced with violence, it makes that so much worse. He wasn't oblivious. He was actually very knowledgeable about what the system that he was actively taking part in was. He had been through the system, he understood the nuances of the system, and perhaps the indoctrination he received at an early age was too effective. Perhaps even though he understood that war wasn't glory and war wasn't fun, the fact that he had been raised with such German nationalism and German patriotism was enough to undermine the dead bodies he carried out on their cots. Either way, it's hard to wrap my pacifist brain around the fact that he could see the death, the gruesome horrors of war, the pointlessness of it all, and he could still allow himself to get trapped in the war machine. He could still allow himself to eventually take part in the economic portion of the war, making his hundreds off of civilians who were just like him. More about this in the next podcast. I'll see you then.